We turn now to the ministry of God's Word, and you can see in your bulletin that we're turning this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, our sermon series these days, is called The Habits of Grace, the life that we're called, this Christian life that we're called to live. It's all about our experience of the grace of God in so many different ways. And it's a life in which we experience that grace in part as God kindly, graciously blesses our regular efforts to seek and serve him. Thus the habits of grace. And lately, we've been training our attention on the habits that go into our worship services on Sunday mornings. What exactly is it that we do beginning at the stroke of nine? What are our weekly Sunday morning habits? And last time, the particular habit that we focused on, it's been a couple weeks now, was the weekly administration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So we talked last time about why we have the supper every Sunday when we get together for worship. And remember, one of those reasons, and there are a lot of them, but one of them is what Paul says about the supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's one of the reasons why we have the supper every Sunday. Every time it's served. Every time we eat and drink as a church, when it's served, when that happens, the Lord's death is proclaimed. And it's proclaimed by us as a church and not just by the minister up on stage. And it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that was a few Sundays ago. Now, one of the things I mentioned then is that when the supper is served, the Lord's death is proclaimed not simply by reminding us that it happened, that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on a Roman cross, an event in history, but also by reminding us of what it meant. Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on a Roman cross as an event in history for our salvation. Not just that it happened, but also what it meant. And this week I thought we'd explore that point a little bit further. What did the Lord's death mean? What did it accomplish? How does it save? How does it save us? And that'll help us every Sunday when that supper served. Because that's what's being proclaimed. If our weekly habit as a church is to proclaim the Lord's death, well then, what exactly is it that we're proclaiming? It's good to be reminded of that, to get a handle on that. And 2 Corinthians 5 is a great place to go. So listen now as I read 2 Corinthians 5 beginning at verse 16, and this will take us through to the end of the chapter. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there you have the glorious culmination of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these words, and they are indeed glorious words. We're, We're brought back in time to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and yet this isn't simply a return in time for us. This isn't simply an interesting historical study for these words. Paul's ancient words are your word, and by them you address us today. And so we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you ever took a detour on a trip that you took. The plan was to get from A to Z, A to C, but then you took a detour through B in order to get through C. Maybe it was planned, maybe it wasn't. And lo and behold, it turned out that that detour took you through some of those memorable sights that you ended up seeing on that trip. So that you ended up exceedingly grateful for the roundabout way that you took. 2 Corinthians, the letter that is 2 Corinthians, feels a lot like that. It feels like a letter in which Paul, who wrote it, took a very happy detour, a roundabout way to share with these Christians what he wanted to share with them. And I say that because of the way this remarkable letter unfolds. All the way back in chapter 2, Paul was tracing his travels, and he was a man on the move. All the way back in chapter 2, Paul was talking about why he went into the region of Macedonia, which was the region to the north of where Corinth was situated. That's all the way back in chapter 2. He's tracing his movements on the map. And then he pauses that, that recounting of his movements on the map in chapter 2, and it's not until chapter 7 that Paul gets back to it. It's not until chapter 7 that Paul resumes talking about 
why he went into the region of Macedonia and what happened when he got there, chapter 7. And it's as if he picks up right where he left off in chapter 2. It's a fun little parlor game you can play with 2 Corinthians, which is to get to that point in chapter 2 and then flip the pages and pick up reading right away in chapter 7, and it's as if you don't miss a thing. It just unfolds seamlessly that way. But thankfully, that's not the letter that we actually have, skipping from chapter 2 to chapter 7. If Paul had largely been interested, exclusively interested, in recounting his travels, his movements on the map, nearly five whole chapters in 2 Corinthians might never have been written. And whenever we read those chapters, we have to say, thank God, that Paul had more to talk about than his movements on the map and going to Macedonia and why he went there. Because you've got the end of chapter 2 and then all of chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Thank God that Paul wrote them, that he, he went off into this roundabout way before eventually coming back to where he'd been. Thank God that Paul wrote them. Thank God that God the Holy Spirit wrote them using Paul. Because there are thrilling moments. There are lofty high points in these chapters. And the end of chapter 5, which you just heard, is surely one of them. And that's our passage this morning. Thank God that Paul wrote it. That he, he takes us here to this lofty view of the gospel of God's grace. So we're going to walk through these verses here, notice what Paul says here, and then we'll reflect a little bit on how these things touch down in our own lives today. And I'll tell you right now at the outset as we're diving in, we're going to notice three things here as we make our way. First of all, verses 16 and 17, gospel perspective. Verses 16 and 17, gospel perspective. Then, verses 18 through 20, gospel ministry, gospel ministry. And then finally, verse 21, gospel exchange. And it's there especially that we think about the cross, which we proclaim every Sunday. So those three in that order, gospel perspective, gospel ministry, gospel exchange. So let's see how Paul puts it. Beginning with his own, and not just his own, but Christians' newfound perspective, thanks to the gospel of God's grace, beginning at verse 16. And just to get our bearings here, remember what Paul's been talking about leading up to verse 16. He's been reminding the Corinthians of what his own ministry had been all about. He's been reminding the Corinthians that the cross of Christ was at the heart of that ministry all along. Verse 15, Paul writes this, Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he is driving home the reality of the cross and the meaning, the effect, the impact of the cross. And then he says, our passage begins, verse 16. Then he says, from now on, therefore, we regard 
no one according to the flesh. In other words, in light of the fact that Christ died and was raised, because that happened, and because we now are a people who understand what it means that that happened, well then, we don't look at things the way we used to. We don't look at other people the way we used to. Paul says we don't look at people according to the flesh. Some translations have it that we we don't look at other people from a worldly point of view. In other words, we don't look at other people now as if this world were the only world that is. We don't see people the way men and women see who are left to their own natural resources. Our horizons are not confined to natural realities grasped by natural and now fallen human powers. We don't look at people that way. And then he admits it, rather frankly, we used to. We used to look at people that way. He even says, we used to look at Christ that way. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus No longer. Listen to it again. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He's not saying we knew Jesus when he was on earth. He's saying more than that. He's saying our whole view of Jesus and what's proclaimed about him has changed radically. And he's not just saying... We used to think about Jesus as if he were just a man and nothing more, and now we know better. He's saying more than that. To regard Christ according to the flesh, that that wasn't just to regard him as mere man. That was to regard him as cursed man, condemned man, disgraced man, which is what you might have concluded about him relying upon natural sight and resources and reasoning. That's the conclusion you might have come to about Jesus if you regard him according to the flesh. After all, what did their Bible say? What does our Bible say? In Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. It says that in Deuteronomy, and later in Galatians, Paul picks up on that and repeats it. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So to regard Christ according to the flesh, to think about Christ nailed up on a cross, is to see the tree and what that means and nothing more. In other words, it's to see the cross. And rejection by the Jews and sentencing by the Romans and an agonizing death and the curse of God and nothing more, end of story. To regard Christ according to the flesh is just to see that full stop. Cursed man. But Paul says no. We don't look at Jesus that way anymore. There are plenty of people who still regard him that way, but Paul says no. Not us. Not anymore. Now we understand that there's more to him than mere manhood. He's the son of God. Now we understand 
that there was more to his experience than the curse that he experienced. Yes, he was cursed on the cross, but he was cursed even though he was the most highly favored one. He was cursed not because he deserved it, but because we did. And he was enduring that curse on our behalf. Now we understand that he's not dead anymore. That death couldn't hold him. He's alive. He was raised. He's reigning in the Spirit. So we we might have looked at Christ himself a certain way before. Not anymore. Now we understand all of those things about him. Now that's how we regard him. A radical change in our perspective on Jesus himself. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Don't we hear that sometimes in ad campaigns? Oh, this changes everything. This new car that you might buy. This new technology that you might adopt. This new phone. This new quarterback. Oh, this changes everything going forward. And then, usually, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't change everything. But the gospel does. Including this, it changes the way a man looks at Jesus. And here Paul is saying, that's what the gospel did to me. And not just to me. That's what the gospel's done to us. One commentator on 2 Corinthians puts it this way. Thinking about Paul and the way he would have looked looked at Christ before he came to Christ and then the way his perspective changed. He says this, quote, Before Paul's conversion, he would have regarded Jesus as a false Christ whose followers ought to be stamped out. Afterwards, in other words, after his conversion, Paul knew Jesus was God's Christ, the one who was to make all things new and to whom all men must be called to respond in the obedience of faith. End quote. You talk about before and after. That is a before and after of the most radical kind. Paul himself initially regarding Jesus in a certain way and then brought to faith and now regarding him in an entirely different way. And Paul's saying, that's not just true of me. That is true of every believer. That's the way we look at Christ now. So Paul's saying, I'm new that way. And then notice the way he keeps going, still under this heading of the gospel perspective. Because in verse 17, he broadens his horizons a little bit. Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So here's Paul saying again, this isn't just about me as an apostle. This, this is a reality, this new regard, this new perspective is a reality that reaches out way beyond me to everyone who is in Christ by faith. Everyone who's in Christ by faith is new like that. New creation. And in the way Paul puts it, it's actually kind of abrupt. It's, it's somewhat jarring in the way that he writes it in Greek, what he says is, if anyone is in Christ, 
New creation. It's practically an exclamation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. If anyone believes in Christ, if anyone has eyes to see Christ in this new way, well then, that person is new. He he belongs to something new that's bigger than himself. All the way back in Isaiah. Isaiah 65, the Lord said, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And here Paul is saying, if anyone's in Christ by faith, that person is of that new world. The Christian is a living, breathing, walking, talking proof that the work of new creation is underway. And and part of that is the new perspective that he has, the way he regards the people around him, the way he regards Jesus himself. So that's first, the first of our three, a newfound gospel perspective. Now here's the second, verses 18 through 20. Gospel ministry. Verses 18 through 20, gospel ministry. Paul is new. Every believer is new. Well, whom do we have to thank for this? Who gets the credit? Verse 18, what does Paul say? All this is from God. So, this new perspective that we have on other people, including Jesus... And the fact that that means that we belong to a whole new world, even the work of new creation, that's not something that we pat ourselves on the back for. That's not just chance or fortune or fate. No, all this is from God. And then notice how Paul goes on. Again, verse 18. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So you see, if anyone believes in Christ, it's not just that they have new eyes to see. It's more than that. It's that that person has a new status Before Almighty God, he stands in a new relationship to God, no longer a child of the wrath of God, but now reconciled to God and the object of God's love and favor. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. And then notice something else that Paul says there, verses 18 and 19. Not only has God provided in Christ our being reconciled to him, but he's also provided for the proclamation of that message. He says it twice in there. He says God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says God entrusted to us the message of of reconciliation. He's saying something there about his significance as an apostle. Through his ministry and those who served with him, God was making sure that the reconciliation that was to be known in Christ and in him alone wouldn't turn out at the end of history to be history's best kept secret. That itself 
was a part of God's plan of redemption all along. Not only the giving of a Savior, but also the broadcasting of that best news. So verse 20, therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God not only provided a Savior but provided for the proclamation, the broadcasting of that message. And Paul says, that's what I am. That's who we are, those who serve with me. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And then he says what the appeal was, what the message was. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Now, it might seem a little curious. Here, Paul says, we implore you to be reconciled to God when this is a letter that he's writing to Christian believers. This is not some evangelistic address that's being recorded for us here in 2 Corinthians 5. This is Paul writing to Christians. And yet he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, it helps to notice that in the way Paul wrote it originally, the pronoun you isn't in there. Our Bible translators, those who have translated the scriptures into English, have often put the word you in there, but it's not originally in there. Paul just says, We implore on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So it's as if he's he's reminding the Corinthians who were the recipients of his ministry, who heard his preaching, he's reminding them of what his preaching amounted to wherever he went. He's reminding them of the appeal, the summons, that was at the heart of his preaching wherever he went, we implore on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he's writing that to those who were. To those who were reconciled to God because they'd heard his preaching, they'd heard that summons, they'd heard that appeal, and they responded to it by the grace of God. That's gospel ministry. And then the third of our three, and this is verse 21, and we've been on our way to this glorious verse all along. The third of our three points, gospel exchange. The first was gospel perspective. The second was gospel ministry. And now verse 21, gospel exchange. Paul's reminding them the heart of his ministry was this appeal to be reconciled to God. Well, how can he say that? More to the point, how is it that God, through Paul and through the church to this day, can summon sinners to be reconciled to him? How can God say that? How can God appeal like that? How is that true and just? And the answer is the cross. The answer is what Christ accomplished on the cross. Look at verse 21. For our sake, he, that is God, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is a potent and concise statement of what Christ did on the cross. Listen to it again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's using some striking language there. The father made the son to be sin. As soon as we say that, as soon as we read these words, we want to be clear on what it means. That doesn't mean that the father made Christ into a sinner. Paul says it right there. Christ knew no sin at all, without or within. He was and he is the son of God. It's impossible that he might have committed sin in any way. No, what Paul's language means there is that the Father made Christ into a sin-bearer on our behalf, made him into a guilt-bearer on our behalf. The guilt of our sin was laid on Christ, and it was the Father who laid it on him. And then it was the Father who treated him accordingly by pouring out his wrath upon the Son as his Son was upon the cross. That's the idea. And that is the fulfillment of what we've heard many times before in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, where it says this, The Lord has laid on him, that is this suffering servant, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then a few verses later, it's put even more pointedly. Still in Isaiah 53, it says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53. And not only was it the Father's will that the Son would have our iniquity laid upon him, it was the Father's will that the Son be crushed like that. But we have to say it was his just and perfect will because the Son was bearing the guilt of our sin. Now, why would the Father do that? Why would the Son willingly endure that? What was, what was the goal in view? The saving goal. Well, Paul says so in our verse, verse 21. The goal was so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here, too, it's a kind of legal reality. It's a courtroom reality that's in view. Just as Christ didn't actually become sin, no, he bore the guilt of our sin upon the cross, a legal reality, a courtroom reality, so, too, the believer, when he believes, doesn't actually become, in that instant, perfectly righteous in heart and conduct. That'll be true when he gets to heaven. But in that moment, he does have the perfect righteousness of Christ reckoned to him, accounted to him, imputed to him, a courtroom reality. And friends, that's what we mean by the theological word justification. The one who believes in the courtroom, if you can picture the scene, he's not just pronounced forgiven. It's better than that. It's fuller than that. He's pronounced righteous. God regards that person as having perfectly passed the test of obedience put to Adam in the beginning. And God pronounces that about him because the believer is now clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to him and received by faith alone, justification. And that is the great exchange. By his cross, Christ took our guilt. By our faith, he gives us his righteousness. How's that for a trade? He took our blame. He gives us 
his blessedness. That's the exchange at the heart of the gospel. And it's there at the heart of it because the cross is there too. So those three this morning, gospel perspective, gospel ministry, gospel exchange. And I want to challenge us this morning with respect to all three of them. Take these three, bring them to bear now. Examine your own heart and mind and life in the light of them. First of all, gospel perspective. I want to challenge you today to check your vision. Take an eye test this morning. Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. And that's true of us. God has worked in us so that our fundamental perspective has changed, including the way we look at other people, including the way we look at Christ. But it's still a struggle, isn't it? It's still a temptation to see others in ways that we shouldn't. To what degree are you regarding other people according to the flesh? Those in your life right now who don't believe in Christ. If you see them according to the flesh, then you'll see them in either one of these two ways. The first way is, well, he's not so bad off. The second way is, he's beyond the possibility of salvation. You think about somebody in your life who doesn't know Christ, look at them according to the flesh, and you'll lapse into one of those two extremes. Or those in your life who do believe in Christ. If you, can, if you see them according to the flesh, again, you can lapse into extremes. The one extreme is, oh, they must be so spiritual. Look at the car they drive. And the other extreme is, they must be cast off by God. Look at the car they drive. Or for that matter, the way you see yourself. If you see yourself according to the flesh, you can end up at the same extremes. The one extreme is... Not bothered by your own sin. The other extreme is wallowing in despair as if you were unreconciled to God. So you see, even as those who have been given new eyes to see, we can struggle with this. And thank God for the supper. And I want to to connect each of these to that sacrament which we have every week. Because every week when we have the supper and the Lord's death is proclaimed, it's a weekly opportunity to focus our vision again. There's a kind of vision correction that we get when the supper is served. We come in here on a Sunday morning and after a week in the world, our vision can be cloudy. And then we gather around that table. And we eat and drink and we proclaim the Lord's death. And just doing that with all of our senses engaged, it focuses our vision again. And it helps us again to see no one, including ourselves, according to the flesh. Gospel perspective. So too, gospel ministry. Christian, take this to heart. The gospel was a message of reconciliation. And it is. And Christian, by faith... You have heard that appeal and you've responded to it by faith. You are reconciled to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And every Sunday when the supper is served, that's the implication of the proclamation of the death of Jesus. That's one of the reasons why we need it as often as we do. 
After six long days, Monday through Saturday, our fears can start getting the better of us. And I get it. I read the news too. And then we gather around this table and we eat and drink and we proclaim the Lord's death. And just doing that reminds us every week that for us, the greatest of our fears has been resolved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus reconciled to God. And then finally, gospel exchange. Christian, take this to heart. Rejoice in this in your heart. For your sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. And every Sunday when the supper is served, that's what's proclaimed and it's proclaimed for you and to you. When we have the supper, we don't just proclaim that a long time ago, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. We do proclaim that, but we proclaim more. We take it personally, like Paul in Galatians. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, Paul says, who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so the Christian can say, he took my blame and gave me his righteousness. The Christian can say, he took hell from me and gave me heaven instead. Christian, when the supper is served, when the Lord's death is proclaimed, we proclaim it as a church. Remember, you're in on the proclamation. It's not just me up here on stage. When we eat and drink, we proclaim that. The death of Jesus and the meaning of Jesus, including the meaning of it for you. You're in on the proclamation, so listen today as you partake to your own testimony. Isn't it striking sometimes to hear yourself saying something or reading something out loud? To hear your own voice saying something? Well, think about that. When the supper is served... I get it. Mine's the only voice that's going to be heard in this room audibly. But in a sense, it is the voice of this church family in unison bearing witness to these things. Listen to the sound of your own voice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear the proclamation of the table. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you've given us a Savior and that you've given us a supper too. Thank you that you've given us new eyes to see. Grant us even this day to have our vision ever sharpened so that we regard nothing anymore according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Thank you that you've made provision for the proclamation, the broadcasting of this best good news Give us ears to hear it again today. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the exchange, Christ taking our guilt and giving us his righteousness instead. So may we rejoice and go our way rejoicing. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.